not affiliated with countries or entities that support terrorism. The plan was swiftly rejected by Palestinian officials and runs counter to U.S. visions for a post-war Palestine. In local news, Washington-based radio station WAMU shut down local news website DCist this morning, following a staff meeting where imminent layoffs were announced. Axios is reporting that WAMU plans to lay off 15 staffers in a strategic shift to focus away from print media to audio. WAMU said new audio staff positions will be created. The Washington Post says today's layoffs leave only four reporters on the news team. WAMU, which is the most listened to news station in the D.C. area, acquired DCist in 2018. Weather in Washington, D.C. right now is 49 degrees with light rain. In New York City, 47 degrees and overcast. For WPFW in Washington and WBAI New York, I'm Chris Bangert-Drowns. Thanks for listening. Thank you all so much. We love, 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 and appreciate you. Thank you to Anonymous. Thank you in, in, in Mar- St. Mary's. Thank you to John Hayes. He loves jazz and he loves the station. Thank you so much for your generous pledge. Dr. Jackson, thank you so much in Fort Washington. Thank you so much. Love you so much. Thank you so much, Anonymous, who made a pledge in memory of Nap Turner. Thank you all so much. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Ida will not beat me up.
Greetings, greetings, greetings. Y bienvenidos a toda mi gente escuchando en Washington and All Points Beyond. This is Oscar Fernandez, and you're listening to Latino Media Collective here on WPFW 89.3 FM, Washington. El Distrito Colombia, here on this Friday, February 23rd, 2024. We're also heard on latinomediacollective.com. You can find us on Twitter under the name at LMC underscore show. That is at LMC underscore show. And of course, live on WPFWFM.org. That's WPFWFM.org. Once again, this is Oscar Fernandez, and we are in the middle of WPFW's Winter Place Drive, which gives you the opportunity to support the Latino Media Collective by going to WPFWFM.org to make a donation. You can also call 1-800-222-9739. And if you have the cash app on your phone, make a donation to dollar sign WPFW. And please give credit to the Latino Media Collective when you do so. Once again, our goal at this hour is $500, and it's only possible with your support because one of the reasons to support independent journalism during these times is not only as a means to sustain WPFW, but also as an expression by you, the audience as a whole, about the importance of independent journalism as a form of education. For example, Today on the show, we continue our analysis of El Salvador's controversial presidential election and why it should matter to the WPFW audience in Washington. So last week on the show, we spoke with Professor Jorge Cuellar on the illegality of Salvadoran President Nayib Bukele's quote-unquote re-election and how his victory marks another sign of the country's backsliding democracy. So this week on the show, we'll discuss what actually took place on the ground this month during the elections and the true consequences of Bukele's state of exception, which has imprisoned thousands of people without due process. And so with us on the show once again today is Yesenia Portillo, who's the program director for CISPIS, which is the committee in solidarity with the people of El Salvador. Welcome back to the show, Yesenia Portillo. Thank you, Oscar. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. And joining us for the first time is Veronica Hernandez, who, along with CISPIS, was an elections observer this month in El Salvador. Welcome to the show, Veronica Hernandez. Hello. Thank you. Thank you. All right. So last week on the show, like I said before, our guest Jorge Cuellar described the state of exception in El Salvador as, quote, painting over poverty as a means to mask broken promises, the loss of basic legal rights, and assaults on a free press. So considering that CISPIS, along with many other organizations, both Salvadoran-related and non-Salvadoran-related, were in El Salvador this month to observe the elections. Having been there, Yesenia, what did CISPIS find, quote-unquote, under the paint in terms of voting irregularities? Yeah, definitely. So, you know, CISPIS as an organization has been observing the Salvadoran election since the signing of the 1992 peace accords. So we've been international observers for dozens of elections in El Salvador. And we also had a lot of veteran elections observers with us, including myself. I've observed several elections myself and also many of the other delegates that were with us and observers that were with us have observed many electoral processes in the last, you know, few decades. So obviously this was a very unique election where for the first time since the 30s, 40s, there is a candidate that is running for consecutive terms. It's the first time also that there is, at least since the signing of the peace accords, an election that took place under martial law. So it sounds like 
you had some conversations with Jorge that kind of went over a little bit about that. But really, you know, we went with the understanding that fair and free elections cannot happen under these conditions, you know, and the tradition of international election observers has been to denounce irregularities and defend against the attacks usually coming from the oligarchy, the military aligned right wing oligarchic elite to kind of use elections in their favor. And we see that definitely play out. We saw that definitely play out in our elections observing this time. Something that was really jarring and concerning and heartbreaking was that the capital was hyper-militarized just a couple of days before the election. So that's not something we ever saw. You know, we we always stay kind of in the same area, not too far from the National University, an area that's, you know, relatively safe. And we've never experienced six soldiers per block, basically. It was kind of from one day to the next, an extreme level of militarization that really mirrored from what we've been hearing from communities in different areas that do experience kind of those like military fences when they do experience a military siege. We saw that throughout the capital as we were traveling to different meetings and getting trained to do the elections observing. We saw people getting patted down on the street by soldiers and had people close to us experience really concerning, frightening, upsetting things with the state of exception and the militarization. We also experienced the impacts of the state of exception even in the voting center. So we had an elections observer be required by the police to delete video that they were taking on their phone, which is really out of the norm. Like international elections observers are supposed to be able to record and photograph in order to document any abnormalities that were happening. And one of the things that was happening across the board that we were witnessing that he was particularly taking video of was people at the polling tables, at the voting tables that didn't have the proper credentials. So this is something that kind of happened at the election sites across the board where there was overrepresentation of Nuevas Ideas people and people who were accredited from other parties not being permitted to take their seats at the table, for example. So in that situation, it was somebody who was at the voting table playing an active role, but actually didn't have their credential and eventually showed something that identified him as a Nuevas Ideas person. And there was somewhat of a back and forth there. So we saw that a lot. And then, of course, there are like multiple other irregularities, but a lot of it having to do with the overrepresentation of Nuevas Ideas in the different roles at the voting centers and them being the only party at the different voting centers that we were at that had propaganda right outside of the voting center and, you know, too close to where it's like not permitted for them to be there. And then, of course, the tech, the mass technological failure that happened on that night. Yeah. I want to just jump in here with regards to the technical failures because I want to quote an article by Jacobin that was written by Hillary Goodfriend, who has been on the show before and has spoken extensively on El Salvador in the past, especially when it comes to the Bukele administration and the state of exemption here. So she has an article that just came out this week, and it said something to the extent that as poll workers began to input their tallies, the platform for uploading preliminary results on election night crashed. Yeah. Crashed. 
So with only 70% of presidential votes and 5% of legislative results registered, the National Elections Board, the TSE or the Supreme Electoral Tribunal, declared the preliminary count a failure. So in this contentious recount that followed, credible allegations of fraud mounted. Bukele and his party appeared to be stealing an election that by most measures they had already won. Again, I'm paraphrasing what Hillary Goodfriend wrote here, but she's not alone in this Jacobin article. Other organizations like NACLA, WOLA, and the English version of El País have said something to the same effect. But please continue, Yesenia. Yeah, I mean, Jorge was on your show last week. I understand talking about the unconstitutional candidacy. And a lot of it stems from that relationship that the TSC seems to have with the administration, which is one of subordination. So an independent body, the TSC is is a body that was established under the peace accords. And it's supposed to have an independent mandate, independent from all other branches of government. And it's the highest authority that carries out independent elections. And it's very clear that that role has been co-opted and that it now has a subordinate, it's now subordinated to the regime. And one very, very clear indication of that is the fact that the TSE approved an unconstitutional candidacy. So from that point forward, its actions cannot really be trusted. And so we really saw all of that play out. You know, from here on out, we can hear Nuevas Ideas politicians kind of try to place blame on the TSE as though the TSE is not under the full subordination of of themselves, you know? So yeah, there was really no excuse for the technological collapse. And for the tech collapse is not the first time that the TSE has had to carry out this kind of process, you know, and this is the first time that anything like this has ever happened, where basically 100% of the ballots have to be counted by hand because they weren't able to execute it the night of. And one of the things that also happened was that just the mere paperwork where the voting tables, the poll staffers are supposed to put the preliminary information. So what what they're supposed to do is count all the ballots see everyone who signed in and make sure that everything is matching up. So the number of ballots that are being counted match the number of people who actually came to vote. And everybody kind of puts in what those numbers are and signs off on it on what they call actas. And the paperwork for that was missing. And that's something that was supposed to be there. And it was missing for hours at the time of the vote count. So we're not just talking about technological failures. That's also something that happened at voting centers across the country. It's not something that happened just at one center. It happened at all the centers that we observed. And it also happened at all the voting centers that all the other international observers were at. So this was a systematic thing. And there's also been audio that has leaked from the TSC president where she says that she does not discount the possibility that there was some internal foul play and meddling, but that, you know, she wasn't going to take responsibility for that because they trained their people and it's up to the attorney general to do the investigation. An attorney general that we also know was illegally replaced by the Bukele administration and is also aligned with the regime. So basically from top to bottom, the regime has had pretty much full control over everything that happens in this elections process, you know, and so We see that carry on over through 
the vote count, the ballot by ballot vote count, where it took a whole two weeks before we get the actual results or some official results of the legislative count that can't really be trusted because for 24 to 36 hours after the election, there were denouncements coming from the electoral authorities that they didn't actually receive the ballots, that it went directly to the administrative body, which broke with the chain of custody that's supposed to happen. And so the TSE then had to come up with some excuse about where the ballots boxes were for that whole time in a way that has been completely insufficient. So it's a tragic it's a <laughs> tragic comedy of errors that seems very unnecessary because one thing that I mentioned to Jorge Cuellar last week on the show was that as much as we disagree with the Bukele administration and some of the things that he has implemented in the country, nobody questions his popularity. That's not in dispute here. So for all of these legal shenanigans to be happening almost two weeks later is rather bizarre. Okay. And so it leads to what organizations like WOLA and El País has mentioned with regards to El Salvador's backsliding democracy. I want to bring in Veronica Hernandez into the conversation because her, along with CISPAS, was part of an election observation in El Salvador this month. So, Veronica, is there anything else you want to add to what Yesenia has brought up here? Yeah, Yesenia's analysis is pretty much, I think, what we all saw in our independent observations of different JRVs, different voting centers, and then within those voting centers, you know, multiple JRVs. It feels like manufactured incompetence in the sense that like there's all these resources that could have been given to help people make this process easier and get to the results faster. And instead, like Yesenia mentioned, the ACTAs were late. The tech packets were late. These tech packets that were implemented, I think, by Bukele's government were late. And then when they finally got here and people were finally using them, completely inefficient. And what struck me most, I think, is something that I know Yesenia saw too, was that at 5 p.m., the voting centers close. People are trying to figure out, like, do we start counting if we don't have, you know, the actas, the permissions from TSC, the tech boxes that are supposed to be there? Can we even upload things into the computers if we don't have electricity throughout, you know, the entire voting center, which was a situation for my voting center, which was in San Salvador? I can only imagine how that must have looked like in the more rural areas of the country. So all of these different things happening... 5 p.m., the voting centers are closing. We're still struggling. 6 p.m., we still haven't figured everything out. 6.30, 7 p.m., maybe, Bukele is already at the center having a party, announcing his victory. And there's several countries, you know, on Twitter congratulating him. <laughs> it feels like it was just very odd and jarring because it's like, what's the whole point of this difficult process that you made more difficult if you are going to just announce your win? I'm going to remember that phrase you know, manufactured incompetence, because that sort of gives us a snapshot as to what's taken place in the last two weeks in El Salvador. And so allow me for a moment to talk to the WPFW audience here that one of the reasons that we have guests like Veronica and Yesenia on the show right now is because under the state of exception in El Salvador, chances are neither myself nor Yesenia or Veronica could be on the airwaves in El Salvador having this conversation because chances are, like I said before, you know, there's been an assault on the free press as well. In addition to denying people basic rights during the state of exception, which has now gone almost two years now at this point. And this was all happening under the guise of what is supposedly a free and fair election. All these manufactured 
incompetence, as Veronica mentioned. So this is precisely the importance of supporting independent media outlets like WPFW, and which is why it's so important that people make the call to support us by going to 1-800-222-9739, or you can go online to wpfwfm.org to make a donation. And if you had the cash app on your phone, you can make a donation to dollar sign WPFW and get credit to the Latino Media Collective when you do so. Because again, chances are, you know, we could try to have this conversation in El Salvador, but then afterwards we would have to brace ourselves for the repercussions of any sort of blowback or any sort of intimidation by the government. And it has happened. You know, I won't go into too much detail, but yeah, I've had relatives that have been, you know, harassed. But again, at the very least, there should be due process. There should be access to an attorney. And right now, those things do not exist in El Salvador at that time. And this is precisely why people migrate to the U.S. But we'll talk about the issue of migration later. But again, I urge everyone to make the call to 1-800-222-9739 or go to WPFWFM.org to make a donation to the Latino Media Collective at this hour. Our goal is $500. And if you have the cash up on your phone, Make a donation to dollar sign WPFW and please give credit to the Latino Media Collective when you do so. Because one of the purposes of having Yesenia and Veronica here on the show is to talk about the consequences of this state of exception. So, for example, underneath the glossy image of Bukele's presidency that has included the promotion of cryptocurrency and a Miss Universe pageant late last year, the state of exception has led to the incarceration of over 70,000 Salvadorans without due process and, again, without access to an attorney. So, CISPIS has been in connection with other human rights organizations like Cristo Salus, for example, and Bloque de Resistencia in documenting or hearing out people who have been wrongfully arrested. So, Yesenia, let me go back to you. Are there any stories that you would have heard from victims or families of victims of the state of exception that, as I said before, juxtapose what is otherwise been perceived as a free and fair election. Obviously, based on what you explained to us earlier, there's nothing free and fair about some of the shenanigans that took place during the course of the election. I think, obviously, the fact that there's currently an ongoing state of exception leads to a lot of intimidation and fear, and a lot of fear from family members, even of people who are being politically persecuted or who are unjustly imprisoned to speak out, you know. But I wanted to go just close back around to the what we saw in the, in the elections, if that's okay. Yeah, go for it. <laughs> Basically, one of the things that you mentioned was with regards to his popularity and what is the purpose of carrying out this fraud that's being denounced. This is something that has been denounced from even before the election. So, for example, you mentioned the Bloque de Resistencia y Rebeldía Popular. They've been calling what is being carried out as a fraud. Like the fraud started from way before the election itself as well. And what actually happened is that Bukele and Nuevas Ideas realized that actually their politicians aren't as popular as he is. So there was a concern about a loss of support on the Legislative Assembly election and also in the municipal election. So they knew that they would be losing support and electoral support there. And so they did all this maneuvering even before election night. So they reduced the number of electoral seats and changed the way that the electoral seats are assigned. So much so that 
even though Bukele's legislators actually received like about a million less votes than he did. But they're still going to hold a supermajority in the legislative assembly. And that's because of the changes to the electoral system that they did before the election. And all of this that we're seeing with regards to the massive failure when it comes to getting trustworthy results, because that's what we don't have right now. So the TSE has announced final results, but they can't be trusted. The ballots went missing, you know, and there's all of these inconsistencies. And so now what we have is an official legislative assembly where Bukele still has a supermajority, even though they've lost a lot of support in the legislature. It's a completely right-wing legislative assembly. All the parties represented in El Salvador's legislative assembly are right-wing parties now. And so the same thing is happening with the municipal election. The, the, the whole system has already been rigged. And it's something that organizations that are represented in the Bloque de Resistencia y Rebeldía Popular denounced from the very beginning and are continuing to denounce. So they've called for the elections to be redone, but under certain conditions. So those being that Bukele is not a candidate since it's unconstitutional and that the electoral reforms be reversed and that the TSE magistrates be replaced. So that I just wanted to kind of close with that a little bit. Now, let's talk about the consequences of the state of exception, because it has been reported that at least and I'm being modest here, at least 244 people have died since the implementation of this state of exception. So either Yesenia or Veronica, what's your take on, on this aspect? Again, because this was happening under a free and fair election, and I just want to point out that a lot of what uh, Yesenia just said is very consistent with Hillary Goodfriend's article in Jacobin with regards to Bukele's legislative popularity, which was in doubt which sort of led to the very shenanigans that we've been discussing here, but continue. I think these two things are very connected to what Yesenia is talking about, about the way Bukele is able to, all the judiciary and legislative and legal moves that he makes further consolidate control over both the executive branch and the legislative branch and how that affected the election also has real impacts as to what you were saying, Oscar, to individual people and leads back to the deaths that we're seeing and also the disappearances we're seeing in the sense that the state of exception allowing for mass incarceration without due process, you know, without people having access to trials or access to see their family or access to the health packets and the food packets that their family members are trying to get to them when they're in these prisons, again, without their trial, that also, I think, describing that and, ident and seeing that as a way of disappearing people is really important because I think it helps contextualize what Yesenia is talking about of this massive right-wing kind of takeover, the municipalities of the legislative area that comes from, and that is aided by the mass incarceration that Bukele's administration has been committing. So yeah, during the election observing, we had a chance to talk to family members, victims of the regime in all different kinds of ways. So one group we talked to was really focused on the way the workers and laborers have been victimized under this regime with mass layoffs that have been across the public sector and are completely illegal and very much kind of out of the blue out of nowhere without giving people information on like, oh, this is how long you have until you're kicked out of your seat. It's kind of like, don't come back tomorrow. And so in addition to the mass death we have, we also have like mass layoffs that are kind of robbing people of their lives in a different way. 
because you have these mass layoffs of like 20,000 public workers have been fired since Bukele became president in 2019, right? And then a lot of these people worked in federal institutions and across the board, they were fired. And then when you also look at the economic situation in Salvador is in with everything, the prices going up with the wages not matching that, that's if you have a job, right? The wages aren't, your wage is not matching the way the prices are increasing. If you don't have a job, that's even worse, right? So thinking about the different ways that people have been victimized under Bukele's regime, a lot of it, I think, comes down to the way workers have been targeted. And that, I think, is especially concerning connects to what Yesenia was talking to, because without representation of workers in these political spaces, right, which the leftist parties in El Salvador are supposed to be doing that, representing workers, then you put these workers are in a situation where they go to their courts and there's no one to defend them. The very same people they go to complain about, you know, being fired, having no way to sustain their livelihoods because of also the cuts of social services done in a way to further persecute the left by Bukele. It's a really dire situation because I think a good word to just summarize it all is stagnation across all the ports. Stagnation in the economy and then stagnation among individuals where they don't have access to jobs and they also don't have access to people who can support them, right? Because of the way Bukele has kind of eradicated the left. That's a great point, Veronica. And it's also consistent with what Jorge Cuellar mentioned last week was that one of the things that's central to Bukele's popularity in El Salvador is the reduction of gang-related crime. But if we were to take that out of the equation and now the picture altogether, the economy hasn't improved, the education system hasn't improved, the infrastructure of the country hasn't improved, the standard of living hasn't improved at all. It's just a series of broken promises, whether it be cryptocurrency or any other lavish or you know overblown promoted things that have really fallen short on his promises. Right. You know, and it, they're numerous as well, as you just mentioned there. And this is precisely why we want to have voices like Yesenia's and Veronica's on the show to break down the veneer of Bukele's popularity in a manner in which corporate media has not been able or has failed to do so since he came into power in El Salvador. And again, I want to re- reiterate something I said at the beginning of the show. Why does this matter or why should it matter to the WPFW audience here in Washington? Well, Washington has the second largest Salvadoran community in the United States, only behind Los Angeles. And we're not talking about a few thousand or tens of thousands. We're talking about hundreds of thousands of people of Salvadoran descent here in the Washington area alone. And D.C. is also, you know, the only major city in the United States that has a majority Central American population if we are to include Guatemalans and Hondurans into the conversation here, who also migrated to the U.S., to Washington, for almost the same reasons of that of Salvadorans back in the 1980s. So this is community. Victims of U.S. imperialism are just as much a part of the Washington community as any other community within this area. And so they need a voice here. They have that voice with the Latino Media Collective so long as I'm here, but it's only possible with the support of the WPFW audience. So again, we urge everyone to make the call, make a donation, and help out the Latino Media Collective, WPFW, and the Pacifica Radio Network as best as possible. So again, the number to call is 1-800-222-9739. You can make a donation online to WPFWFM.org. 
And if you have the Cash App on your phone, make a donation to dollar sign WPFW and please give credit to the Latino Media Collective when you do so. Again, our goal at this hour is $500 and we are only capable of reaching that goal if you support us at this time. Once again, the Central American community is a part of Washington's community. And considering the state of exception, which would in many cases delete such conversation that I'm having with Yesenia and Veronica on the show today, you know, chances are we would be held without due process and without access to an attorney. Is it beyond the realm of possibility? Absolutely not. I spoke about how, you know, the online news site El Faro which was originally based in El Salvador, has now been forced to move to Costa Rica because of consistent harassment by the administration against the free press, not just El Faro, but against the free press in general. And what we're left with in a country like El Salvador is a disproportionate amount of troll farming, misinformation, fake news, you name it, under a president that has a public relations background, by the way, as well. So we're going to take a break right here. Once again, Please support the Latino Media Collective at this hour by going to 1-800-222-9739 or going to WPFWFM.org to make a donation. This is Latino Media Collective here on WPFW 89.3 FM, Washington. Back with more in a minute. Stay tuned.
soy tú, tú soy yo, yo soy tú. Sanando yo, sanas tú, yo soy tú, sanando tú, sano yo, tú soy yo, sanando yo, sanas tú, yo soy tú, tú soy yo, yo soy tú. That was Rebecca Lane, and you're listening to Latino Media Collective here on WPFW 89.3 FM, Washington. We are in the middle of WPFW's Winter Place Drive, so once again, we encourage everyone by going to the phones and make a donation to WPFW and the Latino Media Collective at this hour by going to 1-800-222-9739 or go to WPFWFM.org to make a donation. And if you have the cash app on your phone, make a donation to dollar sign WPFW and please give credit to the Latino Media Collective when you do so. We're spending this hour with Yesenia Portillo, who's the program director for CISPAS, and Veronica Hernandez, who along with CISPAS was an election observer at this month's presidential elections in El Salvador. So I want to turn our attention to the issue of migration, Yesenia, because as El Salvador's democracy continues to decline, more people from Central America continue to migrate in large numbers to the U.S. Along the way, we have seen this fear and paranoia in corporate media about migrant caravans coming to take American jobs, vote Democrat, bring down property values, bring MS-13, all sorts of nonsense. You, you've heard it like a million times already in places like Fox News, for example. With that said, something new has developed in recent years that has shook for lack of a better term, the political establishment in the U.S. And that is that several prominent Republicans, including Donald Trump and former Fox News host Tucker Carlson, have taken pro-Russian positions ever since reports of Russia interfering with the 2016 elections and the start of Russia's war in Ukraine in 2022. So before I continue here, I just want to say that I generally don't follow the issue, the stories of Russia for the last eight years. And generally, it's not something that I enjoy or have any interest in talking here on the show. But through the eyes of Central Americans, it is a stunning turn of events because while Republicans are suddenly fawning over the authoritarianism expressed through Russia and through Vladimir Putin, they have inadvertently magnified that the narrative in the 1980s to justify supporting authoritarian governments in Central America was a lie, a complete, as Veronica mentioned, you know, manufactured dishonesty, for like <laughs> a better term. So if you don't believe me, here's a clip from Ronald Reagan in 1983 urging Congress for more military funding in Central America. Too many have thought of Central America as just that place way down below Mexico that can't possibly constitute a threat to our well-being. And that's why I've asked for this session. Central America's problems do directly affect the security and the well-being of our own people. And Central America is much closer to the United States than many of the world trouble spots that concern us. So we work to restore our own economy. We cannot afford to lose sight of our neighbors to the south. El Salvador is nearer to Texas than Texas is to Massachusetts. Nicaragua is just as close to Miami, San Antonio, San Diego, and Tucson as those cities are to Washington, where we're gathered tonight. But nearness on the map doesn't even begin to tell the strategic importance of Central America, bordering as it does in the Caribbean, our lifeline to the outside world. 
Two-thirds of all our foreign trade and petroleum pass through the Panama Canal and the Caribbean. In a European crisis, at least half of our supplies for NATO would go through these areas by sea. It's well to remember that in early 1942, a handful of Hitler's submarines sank more tonnage there than in all of the Atlantic Ocean. And they did this without a single naval base anywhere in the area. And today the situation is different. Cuba is host to a Soviet combat brigade, a submarine base capable of servicing Soviet submarines and military air bases visited regularly by Soviet military aircraft. Because of its importance, the Caribbean Basin is a magnet for adventurism. We're all aware of the Libyan cargo planes refueling in Brazil a few days ago on their way to deliver medical supplies to Nicaragua. Brazilian authorities discovered the so-called medical supplies were actually munitions and prevented their delivery. You may remember that last month, speaking on national television, I showed an aerial photo of an airfield being built in the island of Grenada. Well, if that airfield had been completed, those planes could have refueled there and completed their journey. If the Nazis during World War II and the Soviets today could recognize the Caribbean and Central America as vital to our interest, shouldn't we also? So that was Ronald Reagan in 1983 speaking directly to Congress to justify more military funding in Central America and also including Grenada in there, which shows you the cowardice of U.S. imperialism, especially during that time period. But since then, politicians like Marjorie Taylor Greene, Jim Jordan, Kevin McCarthy, and various others have expressed pro-Russian postures that would have never been allowed within the Republican Party back in the 1980s. So this red Soviet narrative of the 1980s, when juxtaposed with what we see today, sheds light to what my guest Jorge Cuellar said last week about painting over the true motives of authoritarian institutions. But you know what, Yesenia and Veronica, the worst part of the sole Soviet beachhead in Central American narrative is that it worked, not in its stated goal, but its actual goal. The original sin of U.S. imperialism in Latin America, the original sin of the Monroe Doctrine that is still being practiced today. So at first glance, the issue of Russia today has little to do with people migrating to the U.S. But keep in mind that military aid to Ukraine was stalled because Republicans want to tie it to more harsh measures along the U.S.-Mexico border. So... Yesenia, I gave you a lot to process there, but to what degree can we measure migration today with these lies that organizations like CISPUS have been pointing out for almost four and a half decades? You know, how do you measure this with the lies about Central America almost 40 years ago? Because again, you don't have to take my word for it. We just heard a clip from Ronald Reagan, and that clip came from the Reagan Library as well. Yeah, I mean, well, Russia aside... (laughs) um, You know, we know that the U.S. cares very little about people being forcibly displaced from their lands. And so as much as Democrats or Republicans might act like they care in one xenophobic way or like as supposedly caring about the root causes of migration as the Biden-Harris administration claims to, ultimately, U.S. foreign policy and the kinds of leaders that they support 
always lend itself to the kinds of leaders that they either support or that they undermine. The impacts of that always lends itself to mass force displacement. And we're seeing that in El Salvador as well, where the U.S. State Department has celebrated Bukele's victory and, you know, has congratulated him for his victory and said very little, almost nothing about the state of exception. And what we're seeing is that when people before were fleeing El Salvador because of economic hardship, just as much as they were fleeing because of fear or instability caused by gangs. Mm -hmm. Now we're seeing a lot of people fleeing because of the state of exception and because of political persecution and increasing extreme poverty and land displacement, which is mm -hmm. another thing that is happening in El Salvador under Bukele. So the forced displacement is is only going to increase further. And, and as much as Bukele tries to pretend that people are trying to come back to the country, sure, people that are retired and have money to build homes and are not going to depend on the wages there, you know? So I'm glad that you said Russia aside, because that's precisely the point that I was making here, that Russia has nothing little to do with U.S. foreign policy to Central America other than a veneer to support authoritarianism, whether it was 40 years ago or what we see today, as you just made an example of with the State Department glossing over not only the state of exception, but the illegality of his reelection to begin with. Veronica, do you want to chime in here? Yeah, I guess what Yesenia is saying is pretty much, <laughs> I think, the exact way to sum it up. Is anything I can go deeper into these specific things that are happening, especially like what I was talking about before, it's the persecution of the left that Bukele's administration is successfully doing that is causing a lot of the problems that we're seeing. And that definitely exists within migration. As Yesenia mentioned, people have to leave because of political persecution. And we talked to a bunch of people who have family members who have been politically persecuted and are trying to like organize to defend them, to get them out of their situations, to do anything they can. And what we're seeing is that something you mentioned earlier that is still stuck with me is this idea of how Bukele is able to cover up his movements and gain support for all of these illegal things that he's doing with this idea of going after the gangs, right? And also this broader idea of just going after when it comes to the political spaces, corruption in general. And that definitely lends a hand to what's going on, what we're seeing of people who are politically persecuted needing to leave the country of this idea that basically what we're seeing is that he comes up with these lies, these reasons, you know, to go after people, these claims of corruption, these claims of association with gangs, when the actual reality of what we're seeing is that that doesn't exist, that's not happening, these claims are not substantial. And then these people are put into circuit or the other prisons in El Salvador, and we don't get trial and due process. And so that creates an environment where, yeah, people have to leave, whether they're being politically persecuted, whether it's because also the land defense that Yesenia was talking about, we also talked with people who were involved with that. And I know before in other delegations, CISPAS has been in communication with people who are defending the water and access to water, especially in rural areas for campesinos. And so that too plays a huge role in migration, I think more so than Russia or anything like that. If anything, it's coming from this. Yeah, like you're saying, I guess the issue is not the big red, you know, monster. It's not that. It's capitalism there and serving capitalist interests and serving the ruling class interests, whether it's by destroying the left who have always been, you know, trying to serve the 
interests of the people or by destroying the people themselves by taking away their land and dismissing environmental concerns and approving land appropriation laws, which are just taking the land back from people into the hands of political uh, politicians for personal use, like Ziklut. So the real issue is, yeah, I guess what you're, if that was the point you're trying to make, the real issue is the ruling class interest and the protection of their interests over the protection of the working class. Precisely. And we're almost out of time, but I just want to point out a great quote by the Salvadoran American writer, Roberto Lovato, who described the Bukele administration sort of as, I'm paraphrasing here, sort of a digital form of fascism that unfortunately a country like El Salvador is not equipped to combat against. And so all these uphill battles that we discussed during the course of conversation, even things that we haven't discussed yet, like the anti-abortion laws that are still in the books, the transphobia that's still in place under an administration like Bukele, it has to be said that this issue of people migrating for political reasons, for political asylum, is not exclusive to the Bukele administration as well. This is something that goes back, for one example, 40 years ago during the Reagan administration, and it goes back to the issue of the Monroe Doctrine and how it's implemented, whether through political or economic means throughout all of Latin America, not just El Salvador. And again, one more reason here to have individuals like Yesenia and Veronica on the show to not only discuss these issues, but explain how people at the ground level are fighting the good fight in this uphill battle to prevent any further backsliding democracy in this tiny country in Central America. But to have more voices like theirs and to hear more stories like these, we need the support of the WPFW audience. So again, we are urging everyone to make a donation and help us financially during these times by going to 1-800-222-9739 or going to wpfwfm.org to make a donation. And if you have the cash app on your phone, make a donation to dollar sign WPFW and please give credit to the Latino Media Collective when you do so. Because it's always a pleasure, it's always insightful to have Yesenia Portillo on the show with us to discuss these issues, to see what people are doing at the grassroots level in what is now becoming even more so an uphill battle to prevent this further backsliding of democracy in El Salvador. Because this is relevant to, as I said before, the Washington area community with regards to Salvadorans living here and throughout the whole country as well. There are over 2 million people of Salvadoran descent here in the U.S., but it is almost next to impossible to be able to hear their voices in corporate media other than to hear stories of MS-13 and gang violence and this sort of thing. There are some other issues at the surface that need to be addressed, and it's only possible with organizations like Yesenia Portillo and CISPES and Cristo Sal and all these other grassroots organizations that Yenny mentioned during the course of the show. So, Yesenia, real quickly, because we have one minute left, can you give us the website where people can learn more about CISPES and what's going on in El Salvador right now? Yes. Obviously, the, the website is CISPES.org. So C-I-S-P-E-S.org. And CISPES stands for the Committee in Solidarity with the People of El Salvador. You can also follow us on Twitter. Our handle is just at CISPES. And on Instagram, right now we are going to be mobilizing folks to hold the State Department accountable for its ongoing support for the Bukele administration, despite what have obviously been not fair and free elections. 
Fantastic. So once again, we've been speaking with Yesenia Portillo, who's a program director for CISPUS, and Veronica Hernandez, who along with CISPUS was an election observer at this month's elections in El Salvador. So Yesenia Portillo, as always, thank you very much for being on the show. Thank you, Oscar. Thank you for having us. Absolutely. And Veronica Hernandez, thank you very much for being on the show with us as well. Thank you so much. And with that said, that is it for today's show. We want to remind everyone that you could still make a donation at this time by going to 1-800-222-9739 or going to WPFWFM.org to make a donation. And if you had the cash app on your phone, make a donation to dollar sign WPFW and please give credit to the Latino Media Collective when you do so. So I want to say thank you to everyone this month who has been supportive of the Latino Media Collective during this pledge drive. Thank you very much, everyone, for listening. That's it for today's show. Adios. Nos vemos. Ciao.
WPFW in Washington and WBAI New York. I'm Chris Bangert Drowns with some brief news headlines. The Prime Ministers of Hungary and Sweden signed a defense agreement today to sell four Swedish made fighter jets, apparently opening the door to Hungary's approval of Sweden's NATO membership. Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban has indicated his political party is prepared to approve Sweden's NATO bid on Monday. Orban had repeatedly invited Swedish PM Ulf Kristersson to visit Hungary and said today that the defense deal, quote, helps to reconstruct the trust between the two countries. Orban held out on Sweden's membership over allegations that Swedish officials lied when they raised concerns about democratic backsliding in Hungary. The United States and its European allies announced today a wide array of new sanctions on Russia following the death in prison of Russian dissident Alexei Navalny. The sanctions come just one day before the two-year anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. The U.S. Departments of Treasury, State, and Commerce announced about 600 sanctions targeting firms associated with drone production, chemical manufacturing, and tool imports, as well as financial institutions. U.S. sanctions also target individual Russian officials allegedly connected to Navalny's death or involved in the kidnapping of Ukrainian children. 26 people and firms outside of Russia were sanctioned for helping Russia evade existing sanctions. The EU today also imposed sanctions on several foreign companies alleged to have exported goods to Russia that could be used in its war in Ukraine. The EU sanctions also target Russian officials involved in, quote, the illegal deportation and military re-education of Ukrainian children, end quote. Russia denounced the sanctions and responded by banning some EU citizens from entering Russia. Officials from Egypt, Qatar, and the United States are meeting with an Israeli delegation in Paris today for talks focused on a ceasefire in Gaza and the release of hostages held by Hamas. Qatar and Egypt have been acting as intermediaries between Israel and Hamas, which do not negotiate directly. A top Hamas delegation visited Egypt earlier in the week, where leaders discussed humanitarian aid, prisoner swaps, and the return of displaced Gazans to their homes. Some officials on the Israeli side have been recently quoted as expressing optimism at the possibility of talks to advance. Late yesterday, Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu proposed a plan for his country to retain open-ended control over Gaza. The plan contains many measures Netanyahu has already publicly proposed, but marks the first time they are collected in a single document. The plan calls for an invasion of the southern city of Rafah, now home to more than a million Palestinian refugees. It calls for the creation of an Israeli-controlled buffer zone along Gaza's border with Egypt, a move that could risk conflict with Egypt. The plan does not say whether or not Israel would permit settlers to colonize Gaza, as some of Netanyahu's right-wing allies want. Other aspects of the plan include the dismantling of UNRWA, the UN relief agency in Gaza, and choosing Gaza's future leaders who are, quote, not affiliated with countries or entities that support terrorism. The plan was swiftly rejected by Palestinian officials and runs counter to U.S. visions for a post-war Palestine. In local news, Washington-based radio station WAMU shut down local news website DCist this morning, following a staff meeting where 